We are in for a fantastic, exciting, heartwarming, mind-transforming, life-enriching five days. Annual conference is a conference that, under God, will change your life. What we're doing this week is feasting on God's Word. And that's why these four and a bit days, this next hundred hours of power are so exciting, so full of potential to change your life because we're reading God's Word. So let's get into it. The outline is on page 10 of your book. I want to start by talking about our longings. Seems to me that most of us long for some sort of experience that we will find deeply satisfying. And through the satisfying experience that we're chasing, well, that that satisfying experience will be different for each one of us. Let me try and demonstrate this. I'm going to ask you to choose. I'm going to give you two options, a series of options, but two options. You have to choose which one of these experiences would you personally find more satisfying. Okay? And we're going to vote. So here we go. Here's the first choice. To go skydiving or a fine dining experience in a three-hatted restaurant? Which one of those would you find more personally satisfying as an experience? You've got to vote. Here we go. Ready? Who says skydiving? Yes, you crazy adrenaline-fueled junkies, you. Yes. Who says fine dining experience, please? Yes. Okay, here's the next choice. Here's the next choice. What's, which of these two experiences would satisfy you more? I'm going to give you either $10,000 cash, no strings attached, or an automatic HD on all your subjects in semester two. Okay, who says, uni, pff, give me 10 grand, please. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, and all the EU staff workers, I can see, put their hands up. Yeah, just because... Who says HD on all my subjects, please? Yeah. If you voted for the first one, the 10 grand, you'll be working for those people who just put their hand up just then, right? Just... That's how that'll go. Okay, here's your next choice. Which, which of these experiences would you find more deeply satisfying? A five-day, all-expenses-paid holiday anywhere in the world that you choose or five pills, if they existed, that would give you the most intense and wonderful physical and mental experience possible, fully safe and legal. You can see the choice, right? It's a choice between experiences that are sort of out there in the world and experiences that are deeply internal, right? Like, but which would you choose? Five days all expenses holiday or five pills? Who says, give me the five days holiday? And let's be honest, who says, those pills sound interesting? <laughs> okay. All right, here's the final choice. Which of these experiences would you find more deeply satisfying? You have six friends 
and a boring job, or you have an interesting job, but just one friend. Which would you choose? Six friends and stuck with a boring job, or an exciting job, but just one friend? Okay, who says, give me the six friends and the boring job? Who says, give me the exciting job, but one friend? It's really interesting. We all, we all crave satisfaction. And not just fleeting, superficial satisfaction. What we really want is deep, lasting satisfaction. And we try to get it by chasing experience whether it be through relationships or sex or career, power, influence, adventure sports, travel, purchasing power, we long for an experience that will truly, deeply satisfy and that doesn't just flit away the moment after it appears. This is not new. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician and Christian. You might vaguely remember something called Pascal's Triangle from high school. This is what he wrote nearly 350 years ago. All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person. You get what he's saying, right? Everyone is always wanting to be happy. That's why people do what they do. He makes then this observation. And yet, after such a great number of years, no one without faith has reached the point to which all continually look. All complain. Princes and subjects, noblemen and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, of all countries, all times, all ages and all conditions. He says that no one without faith seems to have found what they're looking for because everyone complains in all the places, all conditions, all stages of life. He then reflects on this constant universal striving for happiness that's never satisfied. He says... A trial so long, so continuous and so uniform should certainly convince us of our inability to reach the good by our own efforts. But example teaches us little. We expect that our hope will not be deceived on this occasion as before. And thus, while the present never satisfies us, experience dupes us and from misfortune to misfortune leads us to death, their eternal crown. What is it then, he says, that this desire and this inability proclaim to us, but that there was once in humankind a true happiness of which there now remain to them only the mark and empty trace, which they in vain try to fill from all their surroundings, seeking from things absent the help they do not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss 
can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. We strive after these experiences that we think will deeply satisfy us. The career, the relationships, the fame, the success, the money, the sex, the drugs, the adrenaline, the parties. And like a splash of cold water on a hot day, there's that wonderful momentary satisfaction, but it passes so quickly. And the whole remains. What will really satisfy fully and completely? Pascal says... The infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, only by God himself. The satisfaction you crave, for which you long, you're not going to find it jumping out of a plane or eating in a top restaurant in the world. You're not going to find it in the perfect academic transcript or even in the most wonderful, loving family. You need an experience of God, an ongoing relationship with the one true living God. That is the thing for which we've been created, which we've lost, and what God wants to give us in Jesus. Look at the Bible passage at the top of page 11. It's from John chapter 7. The eyewitness John is describing what happened when Jesus went up to Jerusalem during the Jewish festival of tabernacles. Now, this was an eight-day-long festival, and on each of the first seven days, a central part of the ritual was that the high priest would carry water from a spring up to the temple in a special golden jug in a procession with trumpets sounding, and he would uh, process around the altar And then he would pour out the water before the Lord and the watching crowd would be waving branches and singing psalms. That happened each day for seven days. But on the eighth day, the high point of the festival, there was no water ceremony. And then John the eyewitness records for us what Jesus did on that day of the festival. On the last day of the festival, he says, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. And then John comments, now he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. Jesus is saying to the crowds, you want real satisfaction, real satisfaction for your thirsty soul? Then you need me. Come to me, believe in me, and you will be satisfied for a spring of living water will open up in your heart and you will be filled with the Spirit of the living God. That's where you will find satisfaction for your soul. That's what we're here to understand this week. The joy, the peace, the security, the transformation that comes from the Spirit of God as He takes up residence in your heart. But as we'll see this week, the Spirit of God is not merely about our desires for satisfaction. The Spirit, in fact, is absolutely essential to all aspects of being Christian. Let me point out to you a few quotes from some Christian theologians there on page 11. Gordon Fee puts it like this. He says, the Spirit's major role 
lies with his being the essential element of the whole of Christian life from beginning to end. Or John Stott, it would be impossible to be a Christian, let alone to live and grow as a Christian, without the ministry of the gracious Spirit of God. All we have and are as Christians, he says, we owe to him. That's a pretty big call. Without the work of the Spirit, you don't even make it onto the team, let alone first base. Then Jim Packer fills it out. He says, The Christian's life in all its aspects, intellectual and ethical, devotional and relational, upsurging in worship, outgoing in witness, is supernatural. Only the Spirit can initiate and sustain it. So even if you don't realise that God's Spirit is intimately involved in every aspect of your life if you're a Christian, not just involved actually, essential to initiating every loving act, every prayer, every gracious word. Jim Packer writes again this time with his uh, mate Al Stibbs. You can't really put it higher than this. He says, The gift of the Spirit to indwell God's people, corporately and individually, is the supreme and crowning blessing held forth by the gospel. Now, pause there for a moment. What would you have said was the greatest thing about being a Christian? What's the greatest thing about being a Christian? I don't know how many times I've heard people answer that question when they've been sharing their Christian story, their Christian testimony. The answers are usually... It's great to know that your sins are forgiven. Or, it's great to know I have eternal life. Or, that I get to be part of a Christian community. Or, occasionally, it's so great to have sure hope for the future. Or, to know that God will work out everything for my best. Now, those are all right and good and true. They're all wonderful gifts of God held out to those who put their trust in Jesus. But what Jim Packer and Al Stibbs are saying here is that the supreme and crowning blessing held out in the Christian gospel is God's gift of his spirit to you. That's what Jesus was offering standing in the temple on that last day of the festival. And they're right. It is the crowning blessing held forth in the gospel. But we'll have to wait a little bit later this week to explore that a bit further. But you might have come along this week, even as a Christian, knowing we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit with a whole head full of questions. Well, you're not alone. In Christian circles today, even though everyone recognises that the Spirit is essential, there's a heck of a lot of confusion. Should I pray to the Spirit? How do I know that I have the Spirit? What experience of the Spirit can I expect as a Christian? How do I know if I've accidentally blasphemed the Spirit for which Jesus says no one could be forgiven? What does it mean to quench the Spirit or to grieve the Spirit or to be filled with the Spirit? What about spiritual gifts, spiritual warfare? What about the extraordinary things the Spirit seems to do in some churches like prophecy and tongues and miracles? Why do those happen in some churches and not other ones? I remember going to a Christian conference here in Sydney where a big-name American speaker boldly told us all, you guys in Sydney are afraid of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's quite a charge to lay. Are we, am I, afraid of the Holy Spirit? Afraid of what the Holy Spirit might do? The same Holy Spirit who's absolutely essential for my very being and living as a Christian? That would be a tragic state to be in. 
or writing on the same theme, you can see there Sam Storms thinks this is a critical issue for the Christian community today. He says, it's a critical and urgent necessity for all Christians of every theological and denominational stripe to wrestle with the divorce that has occurred between word and spirit. So there's a whole heap of confusion and a truckload of questions, and this week we're going to turn our attention to God's word to gain some answers. But a word of caution. Because there are so many questions about the Spirit, some of what we'll talk about this week will be controversial. Some of us go to churches where the Spirit and His work is celebrated front and centre. Some of us go to churches where we haven't heard much about the Spirit. Some of us aren't Christians and don't go to church anywhere at the moment. Well, how great is it that we have all come together this week to sit together under God's Word and read it? So two bits of advice as we head into what could be controversial waters. First of all, as we discuss the Spirit, let's not neglect the Spirit's book. What you say? He's written a book? He has! The Spirit's written a book. The Bible is the Spirit's book. The Bible has to be our go-to resource for all our questions about the Spirit Because the Bible is the spirit-inspired authoritative word from God that is the last word on all matters of Christian faith and conduct. So let's talk about everything. There's no topic this week that's off the table. Let's talk about everything, but whatever we talk about, let's do it with our Bibles open, seeking wisdom from God's book with the insight that he gives us by his spirit. But secondly, as we discuss the spirit, let's not grieve the Spirit by discussing Him without love for each other. It's easy with controversial topics to forget that others here might have different backgrounds to you. They might have had different experiences to you. So before you go and slag off Christian sisters or brothers from another sort of church, remember you don't know the background of everyone who's sitting there listening to you. The preeminent fruit of the Spirit in your life is love, not theological accuracy. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit within us by discussing Him and His work in a way that denies His work in our lives. That doesn't mean let's avoid controversial topics or let's not disagree with each other. No, the Spirit is also the Spirit of truth as well as the Spirit of love. Let's make sure we seek after both truth and love in our discussion together this week. Okay, so let's return to where we started, our longings. This week is so much more than an intellectual exercise. We have our questions and our confusion, but this week is not just about getting answers. This week is about being transformed by the one true living God through His Spirit. We don't want to merely talk about the Spirit. We want to be remade, reshaped, renewed by His Spirit, because that's who the Spirit is. He is God's transforming and powerful presence. At the top of page 12 there, John Stott wrote these words more than 50 years ago, but they're still so true. He says, Surely all of us who say we belong to the Lord Jesus, whatever our particular persuasion may be, he means whatever Christian group we might belong to, all of us who say we belong to the Lord Jesus must be oppressed at times 
by our personal failures in Christian life and Christian ministry. We're conscious that we fall short of the standards of Christ, of the experience of the first Christians, and of the plain promises of God and his word. We're thankful indeed for what God has done and is doing, and we do not want to denigrate his grace by minimizing it, but we hunger and thirst for more. We also long for true revival and altogether supernatural visitation of the Holy Spirit in the church, bringing depth as well as growth. And meanwhile, we yearn for a deeper, richer, fuller experience of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is that true of you? Do you long for a greater experience of God? Do you long to see God's renewing power at work in our lives and the lives of our churches and in the EU at Sydney Uni? Do you long to see revival, not just that ones and twos might come to faith in Jesus, but, but that hundreds, maybe thousands, would turn to Jesus and be saved on our campus and in our communities, amongst our friends? Are we wasting our time here at annual conference just thinking about the Spirit when really what we want to see is the Spirit move in power amongst us? Well, the answer is no, not at all, in fact. Jim Packer there urges us on. He says, Understanding the Holy Spirit is a crucial task for Christian theology at all times. For where the Spirit's ministry is studied, it will also be sought after and where it is sought after spiritual vitality will result we're not just dealing with an abstract isolated topic of christian theology this week we're seeking to know the dynamic life-giving powerful presence of god himself who is the spirit and under the power of god that will not leave us unchanged or unmoved this week so let's get into it. First of all, there, page 12, we have to get our heads around the language the Bible uses for the Spirit. Even in English, the word spirit has multiple meanings. According to my concise Oxford Dictionary, there are at least six different meanings of the word spirit. And when I use the word spirit, it's only context that clues you into what I mean when I when I say it. So I'll give you an example. Here's a phrase. What do I mean by this phrase? My spirits are high. What might that... Talk to the person next to you. What might that mean? My spirits are high. What could that mean? Now, I could mean... It could just mean that I'm feeling happy, right? That my, in my inner spirit, I'm just feeling happy. My spirits are high because I'm here at annual conference. Or it could mean that my whiskey and port are up on the top shelf. My spirits are high <laughs> to keep them out of the reach of all the little children. Or it could mean that my ghosts are tripping out on drugs. Oh, my spirits are high. Look at that. They're all... It could... Only context will tell you which of those I meant. It was clearly the last one, by the way. That the... 
It's the same with the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated as spirit in our Bibles, our English Bibles. The Christian Old Testament was largely written in Hebrew, which was the language of the Israelites, the Jews. The New Testament was written in Greek. So when you see spirit in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that it usually translates is ruach. Can you say that? Ruach. Yeah, you've got to really get the guttural going, right? Ruach. I don't actually know what I'm doing there. Okay, so. Now, like the English word spirit, the Hebrew ruach has a number of different meanings. They're laid out there in the diagram on your page. You can see there from the diagram, the most basic meaning of ruach is wind. But from that very specific physical meaning, ruach then gets used metaphorically for things that are ephemeral or empty, valueless or even worthless. At the same time, the ruach idea of moving air is then used to describe breath. Some suggest it might actually be onomatopoeic at that word, that sort of ruach, it actually sounds a bit breathy. So ruach can mean respiration, it can mean the act of breathing, which is then linked to the idea of staying alive, physical life. But then again, this specific physical meaning gets used metaphorically for having life is like having power. Having ruach means having, having power. But it also develops metaphorically from the idea of breath and respiration in a different direction where it comes to stand for your inner being, your internal immaterial consciousness, whether your mood or your character or your attitudes It's your ruach that comes from your inside. And finally, this idea of the immaterial but still real gets gets extended further and ruach is used to describe beings who are immaterial themselves. Instead of flesh and bones, all they have is ruach. We're talking about here of the metaphysical and supernatural beings. So the word ruach can actually mean a lot of different things and it's only context that will tell you which one is meant. So you need to know that as you read your Christian Old Testament so that when you see the word spirit there in the Old Testament, you have to be aware that the translators have made a decision there for you. They've taken the word ruach, looked at the semantic range of the world, looked at the immediate context in the passage and decided for you which English word to put in there. Should they put wind? Should they put power? Should they put life? Should they put breath? Should they put spirit? What should they put? Only context tells you. So I've listed a whole lot of passages there on your outline, and instead of translating Ruach, I've left it as Ruach so that you can play translator and try and work out which is the right meaning. So let's just do the first one together from Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. You can see what the text says, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a ruach blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So we're starting with an easy one, right? Which, which meaning of ruach do you think fits here? Well, it's God made a wind, a wind blow and the water went down. So we're going to make this a little bit interactive now. This is what I want you to do. I want you to randomly pick one of the listed passages there from number 2 all the way up to number 12. 
Okay, just pick randomly, pick one. Just now get your finger and put your finger on one randomly, that one. Then what I want you to do is work with the person next to you, see which one they picked, and both of you try and translate Ruach in those two passages. Okay? You got about 90 seconds. Okay, now I'm not going to run through them all, since you've got a whole, there's plenty of people here this week with whom you can discuss God's Word, so you can compare notes later. But I do just want to notice a few of them. Look at number nine. Anyone do number nine? A few of you, from Isaiah 66. Let's look at this together. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is my resting place? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in Ruach, who trembles at my word. Ruach here means our internal disposition or mood or character. We talk about it as a person's spirit. Small s, spirit. The reason I want to draw your attention to this verse is because here's a truth from God's word that our world misses again and again and that's very significant for this week. The one true God who made all things and who owns all things, he is not interested in how impressive we are or what or what we think we might be able to do for him. Or what we dare to think we could offer him as a reasonable gift. He's just not interested. As he says, I made the lot, I own the lot, I, including you. Yet he doesn't stay aloof from us, even though we can do nothing for him. Rather, he turns towards those who are humble and contrite in ruach, in spirit. And the end of the verse gives it a very specific shape. Who tremble at his word. This is the great truth of the Bible. That God turns in mercy and looks kindly upon all who humble themselves before him and his word. And as we head into a week of engaging with God in his word, are you prepared, and I'm asking the question of me too, are we prepared to humble ourselves before him? Are we prepared to tremble at his word this week, to read and hear these words and its message, not as mere human ideas or thoughts, but as they really are, the living and enduring words of the one true living God? Because this is the one to whom God will look, to the humble and contrite in Ruach, who tremble at his word. When we get to the New Testament, there's a different word with which to come to grips. Behind the word spirit in your New Testament is often the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma has the same basic meaning as ruach, namely a movement of air. It's the word from which we get the English words like pneumatic, as in pneumatic drill. 
Like ruach, pneuma can mean wind or a person's internal disposition or a metaphysical supernatural being. Again, context has to be your guide. So just looking at the first example there, number 13, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says, the pneuma blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. Now, in the wider context of John 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that if he wants to be born again, he has to be born again from the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, God's Spirit, from the pneuma. But Jesus uses the multiplicity of meanings to draw an analogy with the wind, the pneuma, of which you can feel the effects but not see itself, whose origins and course are inexplicable and sort of unpredictable. And so it is with those born of the pneuma, not the wind, but of God's Spirit. You, would ex you experience it, but you can't see it. You know it has come, but who knows where the Spirit will come to next to bring new birth as a child of God. Well, my prayer is that this week, the pneuma might blow powerful and strong among us. And I don't mean the wind. I mean God's Spirit. How great it would be to see people here this week born of the pneuma and coming to know and experience the one true living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's starting to get you up to speed on spirit language in the Bible. Let's now look at what God tells us about his spirit in the Bible by looking at the Old Testament. This is the record of God's revelation of himself before the coming of Jesus. So turn with me to page 14. We're trying to think about, just super brief as I come to the end of this talk, how does God's spirit, what are we told about God's spirit in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus? So I've broken down the Old Testament material into two streams. First, there's spirit-empowered leadership in the Old Testament. So let's look at that. Though often these spirit-empowered leaders in the Old Testament seem to be a crazy, mixed-up, and sometimes just dodgy lot of leaders. But let's look at some of them. First, you have Moses and the 70 elders. Let me read from Numbers chapter 11. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men, said, My Lord Moses, stop them! But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. In faculty time this week, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, and there in Ezekiel 36 is God's promise to put his spirit in the hearts of all his people. Here's another part of that old covenant promise that looked forward to the day when all of God's people would receive the Spirit. 
But instead of God's Spirit coming on all the people at this particular point, God pours out His Spirit on the leaders, on the elders, to equip them to assist Moses in looking after the people. The Spirit was given by God as a particular empowerment for service. A bit later on, when Israel had entered the promised land of Canaan, God raised up a series of judges to lead his people. Othniel was the first such judge, and he set the pattern for the rest to follow. Let me read from Judges chapter 3 there on your page. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave King Cushan Rishathaim of Aram into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. 40 years of ministry, a pretty short CV there. But the point in the history that we have in the book of Judges is that Othniel, as the first judge, sets the pattern for all the ones who are to follow. And so just about every detail in this little description is very significant. And notice, it's the Spirit of the Lord that comes on Othniel to empower him to deliver Israel from her enemies. And that pattern then continues throughout the rest of the judges. When the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, he sounds a trumpet, calling out God's people to take on the invading enemies. Later on, Samson, who's a very dodgy leader, awesome and dreadful all at once, Samson is attacked by a young lion, and we read in Judges 14, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson, and he tore the lion apart barehanded, as one might tear apart a baby goat. You've not torn apart a baby goat? Well, it's just like when you tear apart a baby goat, he tore apart a lion because the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Now, there's some pretty dramatic spirit action. And it starts a bit of a pattern in Samson's life where the Spirit rushes on him and gives him seemingly almost superhuman strength with which he uses sometimes to deliver God's people from their enemies. And we could go on through the kings and the prophets and there's some references there for you to chase up later if you like. But my question is, doesn't all of that sound a little bit strange, a little bit wacky? Most of us, I guess, have not had experiences of the Spirit of God quite like those. I know some people who've seen visions. I know some who've heard voices, others who've prophesied. But I don't know many who've ripped apart lions in a feat of superhuman spirit strength. Should this sort of thing be my experience as a Christian if I've got the Spirit of God? Well, that raises a really important question for us. What are we meant to do with these historical accounts in the Bible? Are they normative for us today? That is, do they describe what ought to be standard for us? Or are they just one-off wackiness, unique and unrepeatable? Now, working out our answer to that question is vital because there's a whole lot of spirit action in the Bible, especially when you get to the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament, and we want to know what to do with it. It's clearer when you get to the explicit teaching sections, especially in the New Testament epistles, but the challenge comes with all these historical descriptions. Are we meant to do anything with these other than just remember them for sad games of Bible trivia? Well, here's the answer. The key point is to recognize that the Bible 
has a unifying overall trajectory. There's an overall shape, a narrative into which all the different pieces of the Bible fit. And it's only by grasping the overall trajectory that you're going to be able to interpret any particular piece appropriately. So we need to put the crazy spirit experiences of the Old Testament leaders within the trajectory of all of the Bible. And when we do that, what we find is that there's two other great spirit leader figures in the Old Testament. Although you only get their shadow. They themselves have not arrived in the Old Testament, but their arrival is predicted, it's foretold. It's sort of like, I tried to imagine, imagine for a moment that um, we're standing on the edge of a building, right? Here's the building. Comes along here and down here. And we're all standing on this corner of the building. The sun, this gets a bit complicated, the sun is setting that direction. So the shadows are falling here. Here we are standing on the edge of the building, can't see around the corner, but we can see right in front of us. And right in front of us is a shadow. There's a shadow on the ground. We can see a person there. It's a spirit person, a spirit-filled leader, but we, we can't, see, can't look around the corner. We can't actually see who it is, but we can see the shadow. That's what it's like in the Old Testament. There's these two shadows on the ground, two spirit-filled leaders that it talks about, but who haven't yet arrived. Who are these two great spirit figures? Well, the first there on page 15 is the spirit-anointed Messiah. It was a term used for Israel's king, Messiah. It just means anointed one. But here in the prophet Isaiah, we have a promise that God would raise up a future king, a Messiah, from Jesse's line. Jesse was King David's father. And notice the empowerment that this Messiah will receive through God's spirit. Let me read it out to you. A shoot will come, come out from the stump of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This Messiah, empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, will bring justice and righteousness to God's creation. He's not going to be like another Samson, dodgy and awesome as Samson was. No, he's going to rule with righteousness. That's how the Spirit will empower this great one to come. But the other great spirit figure to come in the Old Testament is the Spirit-endowed servant. Several passages in Isaiah, there's this elusive figure, this servant of the Lord, he's called. He's also sometimes known as the suffering servant because some of the passages, particularly Isaiah 53, describe the terrible suffering that this servant of the Lord will undergo in order to save God's people from the penalty of their sins. But here we have a servant passage from Isaiah 42. The Lord says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from prison those who sit in darkness." This servant of the Lord will be endowed with God's spirit. He'll establish true justice in the world, much like the spirit-empowered Messiah. His teaching will be the hope of all the nations, there in verse 4. He'll be a light to the nations to bring them out of darkness into the light. So here's these great two spirit figures to come in the Old Testament, the Messiah and the servant. And you can see from these passages what God will do through the Messiah and the servant. He'll bring justice to the earth. He'll defend the downtrodden. He'll bring light to the nations in blindness. He'll establish faithful rule, not just over the Israelites, but over the whole world. And this is the key point. What we see promised here in the Messiah and the servant is the culmination of all that spirit-empowered leadership in the Old Testament. Moses, the judges, the kings, they all come to a climax in these two great spirit figures to come who will establish God's purposes in all the world. There's a trajectory here, as you see in the little diagram there on page 15. So the point being, before you go and try to rip a young lion apart, or maybe an alpaca or a sheep this week, in the power of the Spirit, a la Samson, you've got to realise Samson's experience of the Spirit rushing upon him was the beginning of a trajectory that lands on these two spirit-filled figures, the spirit-anointed Messiah and the spirit-endowed servant. That's where that trajectory lands. It doesn't necessarily land on you. But we'll talk more about that tonight. And finally, there's a second vein of activity of God's spirit in the Old Testament. God is present among his people by his spirit. In Isaiah 63, Isaiah is looking back to the Exodus, that defining moment in Israel's history when the Lord God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses and through the waters of the Red Sea. This is what Isaiah says. It's the bottom of page 15. Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people, to make for yourself a glorious name. Notice there, God's Spirit, His glorious arm of power, was among the people at Moses' right hand, giving them victory and rest. And the promise God made to his people when he brought them out of Egypt was that his spirit would stay amongst them. Look at Haggai chapter 2 on the top of page 16. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. 
God's Spirit is Himself. When His Spirit lives among them, He is truly with them. God's Spirit has always dwelt among His people. But if we follow the trajectory of Scripture on this one, we see that again, there's a wonderful promise of something more. In the Old Testament, to be one of God's people meant being a citizen of the political nation of Israel. God's people were defined politically, racially. The problem was that not all those who belonged to God's people did indeed have the Spirit. They had a, it's like they had the passport that said, yes, I'm a member of God's people, but they didn't all have His Spirit. Some, some did and some didn't. But God made a wonderful promise in the Old Testament that one day He would put His Spirit in all of His people. No one would miss out. Have a look at Joel chapter 2 there on page 16. Then afterwards, says the Lord, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. This is the great future that God promised, that God will put his Spirit one day in all of his people. And that's the promise that Jesus is referencing as he stands there in the temple saying, come to me and drink. So we've seen these two trajectories. The Spirit-filled leadership in the Old Testament, which points to the Spirit-filled Messiah and the Spirit-endowed servant, and of the Spirit among God's people, pointing forward to the day when all of God's people would have the Spirit. And on the next day or two, as we meet together here, we'll see how Jesus is key to the fulfilment of both those trajectories. Well, you can see there on your page a little heading, what I have learnt and my response. I'm going to give you just a minute, one minute only now, just to write down something that you've learnt or that stood out to you just from this first time together, this first talk, and maybe write down what response you'd like to make to that. Just give you one minute now. Over the centuries, there have been many wonderful Christian songs about the Spirit. And many of them address to God, their prayers. So I'm going to finish each talk this week by using one of these old Christian songs in a prayer. So let's pray together. Create a Spirit by whose aid the world's first foundations were laid. Come visit every waiting mind. Come pour your joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow set us free and make us your temples worthy of thee. Full of grace, descend from high, you the strength of the Father's almighty hand. Make us eternal truths receive and practice all that we believe. Give us yourself that we may see the Father and Jesus the Son by thee. Loving Father, fill us with your Spirit this week that we might know and love you and your Son, the Lord Jesus, more and more. That we might live in love with one another. That we might know your powerful, transforming presence in our lives 
that we might drink and be satisfied and all to your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen.